Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. This discussion is with Dr. Andrea Davis. She is an associate professor at York University, Toronto, in the Department of Humanities and the academic convener of the 2023 Congress of the Federation for the Humanities and Social Sciences. She teaches and supervises in literatures and cultures of the Black Americas and holds cross appointments in the graduate programs in English, Interdisciplinary Studies, Gender, Feminist and Women's Studies, as well as Social and Political Thought. In this discussion, we discuss her book, Horizon Sea Sound, Caribbean and African Women's Cultural Critiques of Nation, where she employs the tropes of horizon, sea, and sound as a critique of nation-state discourses and formation, including multicultural citizenship, racial capitalism, settler colonialism, and the hierarchical nuclear family. So we're here today with Dr. Davis. Thank you so much for joining. Um, you guys cannot see her, but she looks beautiful. <laughs> and so before we get into the project, I wanted to start by asking you the origins. So a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project, how you came to it, what sort of concerns per- did you have, personal, ethical, or philosophical, that drew you to the questions in Horizon, Sea, and Sound? Thank you. Thank you so much for for reading, first of all, for engaging with this text, and for wanting to have this dialogue with me to put some of these ideas out there. I, I really appreciate it. So I... This, this book started in 2017, which was a really tumultuous year that some people may have forgotten. By the way, I, I am coming to you and, and your listeners from Toronto or to Toronto, which is the um, traditional indigenous territories of the Anishinaabek, the Haudenosaunee, and the, the Huron Wendat. 2017 was a really watershed year for me. So this book started in the same month, shortly after Donald Trump was inaugurated as president of the United States. And, you know, the, the kinds of narratives of of hate that that his candidacy had provoked and and produced was really visceral for many of us, for women, for black people, for other racialized people, for um, Muslims, for Jewish people, and and so on. And and so 
you know, part, part of 2017, the early part of 2017 was trying to navigate those changes and what they meant and what they might mean for those of us who were north of the border. But 2017 was also important for Canadians because it was this huge celebration of Canada's 150th anniversary of Confederation, which was the, you know, the political act that formalized um, the creation of what we now understand as Canada. And as part of that celebration, my university, York University, um, you know, put out a call for expressions of interest in events and research projects around that theme. And I submitted something that was successful, was meant to be a series of panels thinking about the historical presence, you know, past and presence of Black, um, black people in, in Canada. And one of the first events, in fact, the first event was a a mini conference that my my colleague Carl James and Michelle Johnson and I organized, and and I was on the last closing panel. Um, re, I think it was called "Reimagining Black Futures" or or something like that, with Ronaldo Walcott and and um, a member of Black Lives Matter Toronto, um, Yus Yusra, and. So I had to write a paper. I had to write a paper for this panel. And I I I just I, I didn't write, I didn't know where to go with it. I was trying to settle on on one idea, one trope that could take me all the way to where I wanted to get to. So I started with Horizon because I wanted to think through what it meant for me as a black woman of Caribbean descent to be in Canada marking this moment of 150 years, what we had contributed and so on. So the horizon as a kind of beckoning did that work for me, but it, but ultimately it, it was dissatisfying because then I'm left wanting because those dreams are never really satisfied. So, so that trope wasn't enough. So then I, I, I was reaching for another one and I thought, well, the sea, I could ground history and memory and lived experience in the Caribbean past and transatlantic slavery. And, and I was also searching for something else. I think I was searching for a way to eclipse the nation altogether, right? I think Horizon brought me to that place where it was, it was this myth, even the celebration of Canada's um, anniversary was all based on this elaborate mythology of of the nation, and I and and I felt compelled to refuse it. So I think turning to the sea offered me this way outside of nation, outside of land, right? But as you see in that second chapter, then still, right? Because many of us survived that transatlantic crossing, we were deposited onto shores and we had to reckon with what it meant to live in place. Um, and so I kept searching and that led me to the third trope of sound, um, which is a way of both being in place, right? Being in tune with, with one's geography, geographies while also superseding them all, all, all together. So I, I I was searching for a kind of 
before we started, you were talking about Caribbean women writers never having closure. In some ways, I was searching for closure, and then I, you know, I end with sound where there is no closure at all. It's all all open ended. So yeah, I was just confronted with the world. I was trying to figure out the world I was living in, and and I would be living in, and my son would inherit, and coming out of the kind of hope that we had been offered of two terms of Obama. And I say we, although I don't live in the United States, but I think that people saw it as a kind of global invitation to then another turn. And and then this, this celebration of Canada's innocence, which didn't, I, I knew was false. I knew the mythology was false. And I was trying to think through those things. Thank you. Thank you for putting that, you know, just, it's always like beautiful waves. <laughs> and, you know, um, you say we for Obama, but like you said, it was a, it was a global invitation for black bodies everywhere um, yes. to be like, wow, that's, um, he represented, which is, it's, it's overwhelming when you think about it, you know, what him and Michelle Obama had on their shoulders, that that's a lot. And while you were speaking, I, I'm very curious to know while you're trying to like make sense of the world and I understand there's never a conclusion <laughs> and you know with each book I read I'm like what does this say about like just human narratives what do you think is in between like horizon and sea or like sea and sound um I I I mean what I what I came to accept at the the end of that search for a trope is that there is no singular, right? I think I say this in the book, there is no singular metaphor that can sum up the long histories, the complexities, the entanglements of black life in diaspora. Um, and, and, and so I see the tropes as a kind of narrative of my own life journey. So, so there's a way in which I am centered in the text, which is un unapologetic and, and intentional, because in some ways it's really about me trying to think through what it, right, what it means to be black, what it means to be one, a woman, what it means to, um, you know, cisgendered woman um, to live to live in Canada on stolen Indigenous land. Um, you know, in in between horizon and sound. Sorry, in between horizon and sea, is it is a project of return for me and recovery, right? Of of something that was lost too quickly in that move, in that move, um, right towards the horizon outside of of you know what for me as a Jamaican may have been understood as. Um, you know, a small, small, the small island politics, um, geographies of the Caribbean, this desire to experience something more. I, I, I think the sea is a return, not just to the past, which is beyond, beyond the Caribbean and, 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 and into and beyond the African continent. But 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 a deep sitting, right? A kind of reckoning with with what one loses in in the many journeys that we that we make, you know, in in various directions across across the Atlantic. Um, 
right? Because the Atlantic also takes me from Jamaica to 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 Canada, um, and then and then between the the sea and sound, for me is, is a kind of discovery, right? Of like that that sitting with memory, sitting with history, listening to the sound waves of that history, being attentive to the voices and memories of the ancestors, learning from the first indigenous peoples, uh, creates, right, opens up this other way of, 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 of being in tune with the world. Uh, so, so learning to hear other voices, right, to center, um, other other experiences, other understandings of the world and of yourself. So on one hand, a kind of refusal, right? Horizon to seize a kind of refusal, this um, return, right? Which then sparks a return. Um, and and I wouldn't say redemption, but but it's 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 a. Uh, you know, attentiveness, and then, and then the sea then releases something, right? That 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 opens up, opens up these these other possibilities. That I think of this relationship between um, the the sounds in the ocean, the sounds in the sea, and then sound waves in the air of voices of song. Right, so 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 in the final analysis is is finding a way to eclipse death, to eclipse dying, um, to eclipse the pain and, and violence. Um, right, to remember. Right, so the Sikh asks us to remember, but how do we remember without being overcome by those memories? And I think sound then allows us to to eclipse the hurt and, and, and pain, right? In, in that third chapter where I'm thinking with motions and DJ Eloquence's performance oratorio, mm -hmm. I talk about the shifts their characters make as a kind of, um, you know, sound travel that, that makes the characters escape each configuration of pain and violence. So they, they morph into something else. They're transformed at each turn. And so there's a kind of sort of practice of survival, I think, is what the, the three tropes allow me to do, different practices of, of survival. At the end, I hope I arrive at something that is more agentic, that is more driven by Black people and Black women themselves. Yeah, that was, um, wow. I mean, we haven't even begun. <laughs> we haven't even gotten started into the tropes, but that was just so beautifully put in. Let me say you have changed the way I now look at DJs and turntables because I will, you know, <laughs> I'm constantly going to be thinking of the turntables as like, you know, moving between past and present. Um, but you just you just demonstrate that quite beautifully. Thank However, you. before we move on to, you know, just delving further into these tropes, 
you you know you talk about Sylvia Winter, the Jamaican writer and cultural theorist, and how her practice of decipherment guided you know your thinking and the concepts you put forth. So can you tell us a little bit about that this practice of decipherment? Yeah, I'm also so, just always learning about Winter, so it's always great to know more. <laughs> uh, she- a goddess <laughs> there is no equal anywhere uh, anywhere in the world um you know it, it's interesting because even as we we're talking for someone who hasn't read the book the concerns it raises are deeply political right but yet the book itself um actually offers a reading of black women's literatures and and expressive cultures, right? So there's a way in which I needed to ground my reading of those or my choice of those texts to read the political through through the literary, through expressive cultures. I needed to to ground that in in right in in some kind of theory that would would, would I guess help my readers understand why this turn to Black women's um, fiction and poetry and theater and, and film and, and so on. And Sylvia Winter absolutely allowed me to make, to make that turn. I mean, my understanding of the, pra- the you know, the, 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 a deciphering practice or a practice of decipherment is that it is, it is really a, for the literary critic, which I am, or the film critic, the deciphering um, practice gives you a, a a kind of methodology for reading, right? A way to read text and to understand that the text itself does not exist in a cultural vacuum or a historical vacuum or a political vacuum, that each text we read are deeply embedded in history, they're deeply political and they're deeply, right, cultural artifacts with specific aims um, outside even of what the author might might intend. You know, so this idea of the aesthetic, what gets valued as as art, for example, or or how criticism works to unpack art, you know, makes it sound as if this whole process is neutral, but she argues that it's not. That, that art itself, Western art, um, actually serves to reinforce hierarchies of the human that privilege a Western middle-class um, idea of the human subject, right? So there's high culture, for example, right? That, that is all of a celebration of and verification of a particular kind of human existence, kind of ideology. And, and, and so on. And so a deciphering practice means that we bring a critical lens to bear on everything we read so that we're, we're always conscious of what the text is doing, right? What it's meant to do. On the other hand, right? She argues that when, when we approach a text like that in that way, when we understand that we can actually expose the signifying practices by which we are ordered as human subjects, then we actually have the ability to transform, right? To transform those, 
those or to alter those those ordering practices. And so she argues, and, and this is where her her theory is so essential to me, that black artists, Caribbean artists, African artists, um, bring a different set, right? Come bring a different what they do is 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 to bring a different texture, not only to the text, but to the life that the text informs by by what she calls counter-signifying practices. So these counter-signifying practices are meant to challenge the Western imaginary's kind of ex exaltation of itself. And so when, when I read the, the fiction, the novels, the poetry, the, the film, the music, et cetera, of Black women um, in this book, I'm reading all of them as counter-signifying practices that are exposing something right about the societies whether those are in canada the united states or in the caribbean right they're exposing something about those societies with the aim of ultimately trying to alter them right to make them um liberating um right so to create spaces of freedom for black people And in line with creating these spaces of freedom, that still, um, it relates this conversation with the nation discourse, the nation state discourse, which I do really appreciate that chapter, which, which is what we were discussing before. It puts actually a lot of different discussions or different readings. Um, so your framework is really applicable to different readings, whether I can look at Senegalese literature, for example, and say, well, this is why the form of the novel or just the way the author would position the protagonist would just go way off, <laughs> way off bound. Or, you know, like some protagonists are like, wow, that's a different choice. Or <laughs> this, the obscure endings of, you know, Claire, Chauvet, uh, Amour, Love, and Folie. It's just, it's usually, or your book made me see that these protagonists or the way the author created these characters it's not it's it's bigger than just going against patriarchy and creating these spaces of liberation for them but it's also going against the the nation state discourse on a, on a larger level um so can you talk to us a little bit about that because um i'm just really curious and you really put into perspective of how in particular, when we look at like Canada, this, uh, the multicultural citizenship that, you know, <laughs> how that conversation is going. Um, but yeah. 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 I mean, you, you make me think in particular about um, M. Norbesi Philip and her collection of poems, um, or her long collection, Zong, that I talk about in the in the second chapter, there's a way in which black women in particular, right, really upset the unsettled, right? Unsettled language, unsettle our expectations of what, right, what a text should 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 deliver. And and I and I agree with you. I do think that part of that is 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 an overall kind of refusal of the logics, right? The logics of Western thought. And, and, and in, I think of all the, 
the, the text I engage in the book, Emnor Basif Philip does that right most, most powerfully and strategically. Um, you know, so you, you know the story of, of Zong, the, the slave ship taking um, enslaved Africans to Jamaica who were then thrown overboard um, and, and claimed as, as insurance, um, right? And, and there was a logic to that. There was a logic to that that said you could do this and, and claim for your property. And so in, in contesting that kind of, of, of logic, like, right, she says over and over again in all of her work, there is something that English just cannot do, right? That there, or even, even, even the form of narrative, right? The narrative form, which is why I think most of what she does is in poetry form as, you know, similarly for Dion Brand, you know, so what she does in with Zong is she takes the actual literal text of the law of that case and, and shreds it, right? And then rearranges, you know, those pieces into whatever shapes they come in, you know, they form and then try to recreate something out of that. So a complete refusal of the logic of, of, of Western thought. But to go back to the idea of multicultural citizenship, I mean, it's, it's, it's deeply embedded in a similar kind of, of logic that Canadian society is not racist because this is a country that is primarily made up of, you know, historically has been largely made up of immigrants. The narrative of the Underground Railroad that Canada accepted and offered freedom to, to enslave Black peoples in the United States eclipses the reality of enslavement in Canada and the fact that many enslaved people actually tried to flee south of the border into, you know, northern states like Michigan and, and New York where slavery was abolished before it was in Canada. Um, and then the passing of the Multicultural Act in, in the 1970s and 80s in Canada suggests, right, that because the, the country narrates itself as liberal, because in cities like Toronto, there is so much visible um, people from, you know, so many diverse groups, and that country cannot be, right, cannot be racist. It has to be pure. It, it has to be innocent. It's better than, you know, the United States. And, and so when, when acts of racism do occur, they get narrated as individual rather than systemic, rather than institutional. Yeah. And so there's almost no way to talk about, right, to talk about racism, to talk about race in a Canadian context. And, and so, you know, part of the work that the book is trying to do right up front is to, is to expose those fallacies beginning with Canada's relationship with, with the indigenous peoples to whom this, these lands really belong, right? That, that 
that white Europeans settled, French and, and English-speaking Europeans settled on land that had been occupied for thousands of years by indigenous peoples. And, and that some of us by force or otherwise through our own you know, histories of, of, of loss from our own indigenous lands or by choice or as new settlers have, have come after. So how does one even begin to narrate Canadian innocence in, in a context of ongoing you know, indigenous colonization in a context of ongoing um, anti-black, um, you know, humiliation. Um, yeah, so I, you know, those those are those those are some of the questions I was really pondering in twenty in twenty seventeen, and and it's not it's not to. You know, um. On the one hand, I'm, I'm trying to make the nation accountable to itself. But, but I think that also by the time I get to the third chapter, it's also thinking about the project of nation itself as, as kind of flawed, especially within the context of a growing climate catastrophe that, that our sole kind of unitary singular, um, loyalty cannot be to one one nation state our, our loyalty needs to be to the preservation of an earth that we have to share and covid made that really clear too right some of us like in canada had access to to vaccines to buy now we have access to bivalent versions of the vaccine and where there are nations where people have none so how, how does one sit in Canada and say, you know, oh, our nation is so great because we have these things when, when there are other people who have nothing? I, I think there's a way in which we have to think transnationally. And I think Black people have always done that. Um, I think the imperative to do that is greater even now. It's even greater now. You talked about this because you did talk about, you know, it's not just about, you're really asking us to ponder on all sorts of justices, including environmental justice. So thank you for, you know, like making that bit larger connection and just having that wider scope of how we should approach, you know, the concepts you put forward. So the other thing I do want to talk about, and I think this more so lies on like the sea trope, but it is also in conversation with the nation state. But can you speak on the diasporic identities? I do have to say, I loved, loved this, you know, the section where you talk about diasporic identities. Um, I belong to so many different groups or settings, however you want to call them. Um, but you, you put this notion forward that these diasporic identities are always suspended in anxious flight they're never fully arriving or returning. So it's this space of in-between and they're just navigating multiple belongings. And I think yeah. this is something that we see in the archives in the past, but also now and obviously in the future, it's just going to be getting, um, we're going to continue to have these diasporic identities that belong to multiple different places. And 
And I think that kind of, you know, to your point, what you were saying, it it frazzles this nation state discourse of, you know, like we all belong to pledge allegiance to one nation. Um, I do feel funny when I see a flag sometimes, not going to lie with the World Cup, I am supporting Senegal. But, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, that moment where everyone's just like hand to chest and pledging allegiance to the flag. I'm like, wow, we're still doing this, you know, but (laughs) how does, you know, these, the diasporic discourse function in the critique of the nation state? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's... uh something that I sit with a lot, right? What it means to live in diaspora, to live in diaspora unbelonging, to live in diaspora suspension. You know, I I, I grew up in, in Jamaica, in the Caribbean. I belong to a working class family. So we were, we didn't have much. Um, I, I happened to go to have, you know, get one of the best educations because in a, Caribbean context or Jamaican context, I was bright. Um, And then that opened the door, you know, a Canadian Commonwealth scholarship for me to come to Canada to study. And when I um, left Jamaica in my early 20s, it was the first time I had ever traveled outside the island. Um, So first of all, this idea of travel and mobility is not meant not not everyone right not everyone has that privilege so so the overwhelming majority of Jamaica certainly poor Jamaicans will never leave that island right they will never even go to another island in the Caribbean um they might not even go very far from their own villages right um so there's also a kind of privilege in mobility right which you know, again, in some ways, harkens back to to enslavement. So I came to Canada in my early 20s as an international student and was completely upended, you know. It took me, honestly, I would say about 10 years to really feel like I had my feet on, you know, solid ground like I kind of understood like I I knew how to step over the the landmines I kind of knew how to navigate you know when I first came onto campus you know I was just overwhelmed like suddenly for the first time in my life I was a minority other people are like of course you're like no I'm not used to this like I, I speak in class and if I don't show up one day everybody knows I'm not there that's very weird in at one in one way I was totally invisible and, and on the other hand I was hyper visible right so dealing with those contradictions but then but then there were things that that changed that 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 altered me in in ways that that I that are part of my growing, right? That that were essential to who I have grown into. So you know, my coming into feminisms and and my understanding of myself as an anti-racist feminism. That I I don't know that that would have happened or happened in the same way without that journey, or um, you know, my turn to to Black Canadian studies, first to African-American literature and and then 
to Black Canadian um, studies, Black Canadian literature and Black Canadian studies. So, so there's some, there's a way in which, you know, our, our, our selves, our different selves collide and, and keep, keep expanding. But, but once you meet, right, once those two things meet, that young 20-something-year-old arrives in Canada and these transformations occur, then there is the, the past is lost. There is no returning. There is no being in the same way. Right. There's no simple just just let us trace the, the route back in the same way that there is no direct route back from from the Caribbean to West Africa. Now, there is really no easy, no easy return because something has has changed in, in some ways. It's like Frederick Douglass in his narrative. Your eyes are open up and and. And, and you almost wish you didn't have the kind of clarity, right? You you wish you could kind of walk around um, not knowing, right? Some things about the world and yourself. And I see that all the time with my students, students like you, who on the one hand are reaching for what is really their parents' identity, right? In, in Nigeria or or Somalia, or the Congo, or Barbados, or or Trinidad, but then they make a trip to New York, and then they suddenly become Canadian, because that makes sense in that context, right? But when they're in Canada, they then they need to be, so it's just, right, this constant kind of re-narration. And I think at some point in my life, I, 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 I realized that it was okay. I, I, I draw on this idea from Dion Brand's A Map to the Door of No Return, and I really see myself as a child of diaspora. That, that is okay. It is okay to be suspended in time. There's a kind of um, clarity with that. Like I am able to look in multiple directions at the same time and see absolutely clearly in, in each of those directions. And there's something that I bring, right, to each place I occupy, to each place I leave, to each place I come to, that's, that's a gift, right? I bring a gift, I think, right? Um, each time. So mm -hmm. yeah, there are lots of us, these children of diaspora. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> it's always been there. And it's, uh, it's good to read more narratives. And it's, it's, I do like how you say there's this clarity of um, being able to, what makes me think of like metamorphize into these different spaces. Um, even It may take a while, but then it's like as soon as a Black woman gets it, then she's able to exist and um, be everywhere and nowhere, which is, uh, yeah, I don't know what to think of that yet. <laughs> but it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely, but I know the first chapter really resonated with me because I kept thinking about my mom, you know, just mm -hmm. sometimes it's like she's constantly in this space of anxiousness. Um, do you move forward? Do you, do you go back? But you know you can't go back, like you said. After a certain time, the the path is lost; um, it's mm -hmm. no longer existent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, and just to speak a little bit about, you know, the text that you chose for um, the first trip of the sea, use the works of Jeanette Sears' play Harlot Duet and Essie Dugian's novel The Second Life of Samuel Tien. So to consider the ways in which Black women's journey in search of a place where they might finally arrive and stay, right? So can you talk to us a little bit about those works that you've chosen and how it also led to the next trope of the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, like we've been discussing, then there's this failure of the horizon to deliver the promise of a better mm-hmm. future. Um, yeah. But yeah, so if you could speak to us a little bit about that. Yeah, what, what's um, maybe a, a bit unique about Caribbean migration to Canada is that a larger percentage of women, Caribbean women, migrate, right? At least migrate first and and then bring their children and and sometimes their partners with them. So it it tends to be heavily um, gendered, right? Heavily gendered in that way. And, uh, you know, the the kind of of formal, formal immigration of Caribbean peoples Black peoples, that is, and, and in, in Indian Caribbean peoples to Canada actually started in the 1950s with the West Indian domestic scheme. So from the beginning was gendered in, in that way. So, so a lot of women, um, you know, working class, middle class, skilled, even leaving the Caribbean, you know, setting out on this journey often, right, almost always in, in, in the hopes of creating a better life for themselves, but if not for themselves, then certainly for their children. The idea is to, to work hard to, and, 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 and to build something for future, future um, generations. The problem with that dream is that the, the second generation and the third generations um, of, of Caribbean diasporic and African diasporic immigrants in Canada. I mean, research shows that instead of doing better, right, those very children that women and families migrated for, instead of doing better, they're doing worse, right? Because our parents, who their parents who came as adult immigrants, right, would have gotten their education elsewhere. Um, most of them be, you know, be, be very, very accomplished, whereas their children would be exposed to, you know, to anti-Black racism, to institutional racism from as early as three, four, right? From the very beginning of the educational systems, they have their, their pathways defined their freedoms, delimited um, their ideas about themselves and and the world, reordered so that their, so the the sacrifices of the first generation don't necessarily bear fruit or don't bear fruit to the extent that one would imagine in the second and third generation. What it does produce though, and this is where I get to in the third chapter, is a second and third generation 
with, with a sharper and more acute critique and understanding, right, of, of, of these systems, that, that these systems, you know, the system of racial capitalism, which depends on, um, you know, the, the, the management of the overwhelming majority of people, the impoverishment, the continuing need of millions of people so a few people can be enormously wealthy. I think the second and third generation and young people generally in the United States and elsewhere are understanding that it doesn't add up, right? So in the protests of 2020, it wasn't just about George Floyd, it was about, you know, why are we, why, why, why do we, why do we have to pay so much to get a, a good education when we when we're not getting jobs or, or you know we're being absorbed into a gig economy? There is right. It doesn't add up. Something is not is not adding up. And and it's young people also the second and third generation and young people who are also driving and understanding you know the the the, the importance of creating a viable and sustainable world. In which, in which all of us can live. So it's not just about material consumption. It's about care, right? Care for the land, care for each other, care for the oppressed. Um, I, I, I find in my students that, that that is real, that that is genuine, that kind of, of politics, that kind of desire is real, is real and genuine. And that's where I think I, I, I ended up, so I start out with this kind of, you know, dream that that leads, that is forever delayed, right? You can't actually touch the horizon. Um, and then I think there's a way in which the second and third generation interrupt that and say, well, we're not doing that. We're not going after that endless, um, you know, illusion. Let's stop and let's re-narrate the world in a different way. It's, it's, you know, maybe we, we don't need to consume like that. Maybe we, we don't need to, you know, take more than, than we give. Maybe all of us can, need to have less so that all of us can live. You know, that's, that's where I, I, I think I'm, I've, I've, the trajectory I think I've charted, um, at least from horizon to sound. And I think that's when in chapter um, in chapter three, that's when you mentioned, well, this is where the generation's turning it upside down, yes. you know, and this yes. is where it's that stopping of that unlimited dream that, you know, that's just been sold. And I think I, I do want to, you know, close out these tropes by when you speak about this concept of the idea of future now. So if you can tell us about this and how you connected to Tina Kemp's exploration of Black feminine, feminist futurity. So you yeah. mentioned how Kemp poses this question that's critical to your work. What does it mean for a Black feminist to think in the grammar of futurity? Um, but I really yeah. like the conversation you had around this. Thank you. Um, so this idea of the future now started with me thinking about diaspora, right? Thinking about 
again, what it means to live in diaspora and how diaspora living is theorized. And, and I think about diaspora, I teach diaspora as cyclical, right? As, as being this relationship with the past, the present and, and the future. So those of us who live in diaspora time in the present, right, are always kind of looking back at this past that was lost, right, either in regret or, or something else. But there's a past that grounds our arrival in, in the present. But because the horizons, right, that, that led us to where we are now, are unable to deliver anything close to freedom, then Black people are also, right, always looking ahead to the future for, for a future when, for a future when I might be free, for a future when I might be whole, for a future when I might be, you know, happy. Um, and, and again, so, so there's this kind of perpetual delay. And, and, and we hear this all the time, right? Oh, you can't expect change to happen. Um, it, it takes time. And, and again, you know, younger people will be like, well, we've been waiting 500 years, you know, where are the change at? Um, <laughs> it's, you know, the, the civil rights movement happened in the 1960s where, you know, where's, where's, the, where's the change? When does freedom arrive? And I think the future now, right? What does it mean um, to live in the grammar of black futurity? Again, interrupts that notion of delayed freedom, of delayed satisfaction, and asks us to reckon with what it might mean to, to, un to live, to understand or to discern, right, the forms of freedom, right, that we create in the presence that, right, that that we that we are in and 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 that we have, but also that the presence that we the time, you know, where we are now, what we do now is also going to dictate the future we have. So 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 that there's a need to kind of live intentionally, right? Um, discerning the, the ways in which we can articulate, right? In some ways, even if there are small ways. I think of Saidiya Hartman's um, chorus in, mm -hmm. in her last book. I, I think of the moments of intimacy and joy in right in 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 that text even in the midst of of brutal violence and and loss and and so to me the expressive cultures of of black people is part of that interruption right is is part of that expression of what it means to live a survival practice that or what Mariam Kaba in in her book calls hope, hope as hope as a practice, right? So that it's it's not just something floating in the air. It's something that that black women 
insist on on bringing into into being. Um, and, and yes, it's 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 you know highly metaphorical and theoretical, but I but I but I think that that is how Black people make life, right? That in in the in between spaces we create in the in-between spaces we imagine and otherwise, in the in-between spaces we dream, we remember, um, we speak, right? We love and and I wanna I wanna open up those spaces as well. Oh, that was so beautiful. The is you know, the surviving as practice. Um and I think that's that's what that's why I love literature. I, I can't talk that. That's just, uh, it's really those in-between spaces. They're yes. undefined. They're uncategorical. Um, they are what they are. <laughs> yes. And it's yes. just, um, yeah, it's, it's quite simply marvelous of what can come out of that. And, you know, I don't know if you had this in mind, but while you were writing this book, did you have a specific readership in mind? Did you want, you know, readers to walk away from your book with, a, you know, like new ideas, orientations, uh, curiosities? Um, I, for one, will have this on my <laughs> reading list. So thank you. <laughs> you. Yeah, I, I, I guess I was writing to, to fellow Canadians, um, inviting them to think in new ways about about Canada as as a nation state, I realize now that most people read the book um, more more narrowly as kind of a Caribbean literary critique, which is fine. Um, but but I but I did have a wider wider audience in in mind. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to 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 write to, you know, indigenous colleagues, indigenous co-resistors, um, all co-resistors. But, but in, and in some ways I was just writing for myself too. So I think I was part of the audience. I was growing with the text. I was learning with it, yeah. And to return that question to you, how do you walk away from this book and the process of writing, <laughs> um, editing? It, um, I was told, as you know, I haven't written my first book yet, but it can leave one quite exhausted. So <laughs> did it leave you on to um, a next project? But how did it leave you? <laughs> well, exhausted for sure. <laughs> Um, but also, to write about, yeah, sure. <laughs> but just so, just so satisfied. I I open the book with a, a quote from Audre Lorde about the need to speak and to tell our stories, whatever the cost. And I, I wanted to to tell my story, and I wanted to do it myself. And when I say my, I. I wanted it to be a black woman's story. I wanted my voice to produce something. Um, and I, I, I didn't want anybody else to do it for me. So I just, I just really felt like I needed to say this. And, and so I, 
I I was satisfied, you know, it, there, there was a kind of, of closure in a way, because I think I did what I, what I set out to do. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, I'm struggling to find time, but, but my next project, I want to be a kind of his, historical, prose narrative slash memoir where I want to, I don't know if you remember in in the chapter on the sea where I mentioned a, my white great-great-grandmother who died at sea. And I, I've, I've wanted for years to follow that trail, to go into the archive, to get a sense of who those women were coming from, you know, coming from Britain in, in the 19th century and yeah and and to to you know see see what that might that might produce I I thought I've always thought that it would be a novel but it, it could also just be kind of prose narrative memoirish so we'll see yeah <laughs> well i think we would be happy to read it and thank you once more for making the time um this was such a great book i really enjoyed it the frameworks are very applicable to different fields and especially your call for you know this relationality with other indigenous scholars um but once again thank you for making the time to join us <laughs> And thank you again so much for reading and engaging with my work. I am, I am grateful. Thank you. Thank you.